When you go to an orchard, are you pleased if none of the trees have fruit? Suppose they appear to have strong trunks and branches, lots of green leaves. Will you be satisfied if you go and they have no fruit? In our passage today, the time had come for Jesus to go into Jerusalem. The fruit should have been ready for harvest, but there were only leaves. The people shouted Hosanna, but did not want Jesus as Lord. The temple had become a marketplace. The priests and rulers rejected Jesus' authority and tried to trap him with words. Jesus is Lord, but only a few were ready at his coming. This passage, I believe, is calling us follow Jesus as Lord. Follow Jesus as Lord by obeying, which is to bear fruit. We see this in chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. Following Jesus as Lord means doing exactly what he says. The verse, first 10 verses, uh, Jesus sent the disciples to get a colt, and they told the bystanders exactly what Jesus commanded and received permission of them to take the colt. And Jesus sits on the colt, and the crowd recognizes him as Messiah, the son of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, just like Bartimaeus did in the previous chapter. The disciples do exactly what Jesus says. Go get this this colt, bring it back. They do exactly that. The crowds say things that are true about Jesus, that he is the heir of David, and that's true. But are they really following him as Lord? Is there fruit to match the outward show of devotion? Following Jesus as Lord doesn't mean just doing exactly what he says, but bearing fruit to match your leaves. Jesus looks around at Jerusalem, but then leaves the Jerusalem because it's late. And then the next day he curses this fig tree that has leaves but no fruit. There's a passage in Isaiah and several passages actually in the prophets which draw a parallel between the people of Israel and a fig tree or a grapevine. Isaiah 27 verse 6 says, In, that day, in the days to come Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. But then we turn over to Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. And there it says this, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away due to the idolatry and treachery of the people of Judah. And then over in the book of Hosea, chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. So there's an expectation of a time when the people of Israel would bear fruit. There's the recognition that in the time of the exile, they were not bearing fruit. God comes They're doing things outwardly, like the show of leaves. There's no true fruit of following after God faithfully, so God sends them away into exile. For God's people who are seeing in Jesus coming, the coming of the Messiah, as it truly was, there should have been an expectation that now there's going to be the time of harvest, that God's word has been preached, the Messiah has come, now the kingdom is also going to follow. But once again, as there was before, leaves outward show devotion affection following after god but no true fruit of heartfelt genuine trust in and following after god you go to the temple in the next scene verse 15 and following through 18 
People are putting forth leaves of busyness for doing the things that God wanted, but no fruit acceptable to God due to the greed and sin in their hearts. You come to the temple, and Jesus starts to drive people out. And he doesn't let anybody carry merchandise through the temple. He say, well, but the people were supposed to come, and if they'd come a long distance, they were supposed to turn money into animals so that they could give those animals for sacrifice. So if you were coming from 100 miles away, you wouldn't necessarily bring a couple of birds or a sheep or a goat. You would go and buy it in the temple. Why did Jesus stop this? This was a necessary thing for the worship that God had declared. The answer is found in Jesus' words. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. They had shifted the focus from being a place of prayer for not only God's people Israel, but for all the nations to come and commune with God. They had shifted into a business transaction and not just a standard business transaction, but one in which they were making money. Here's these poor folks from the country. We're going to rip them off because we're the wise city folks. We're going, to, we're going to take more than we should. We're going to sell them a dove for 20 shekels when it should be five or whatever the example would be. And so they were taking advantage of people who were poor or who had traveled a great distance, who weren't familiar with everything that was going on in the temple. Those people are coming, trying to follow after God. And those who should have known better, who should have done better in following after God, are taking advantage of them and have turned this place of worship into a marketplace. Jesus rebukes them, and the response of the chief priests and scribes is to kill him, because the people are astonished at his teaching. They're worried they're going to lose the affection and respect of the people, so they desire just to get rid of Jesus. Quick point of application. The church is not supposed to be a marketplace. Now, I'm not saying if a church has a coffee shop within the church that that immediately means the church is turning away from God. However, to the extent that gathering in a place of worship becomes about things like money and personal advantage, then we're doing exactly what Jesus condemned in this passage. You say, well, we're not buying and selling sheep and goats and doves and all those sorts of things. We're not ripping people off. I don't know that it's been a problem at our church, but there's churches where I've been at when people see the church as an opportunity to advance their, their particular marketing scheme, right? We're going to sell you essential oils. We're going to sell you sweaters. We're going to sell you scarves. We're going to sell you whatever else. And church is not about ministry and fellowship and worshiping God. It's about here is a market segment that I can manipulate to build my own wealth. Or we go the direction that James condemns. It's not supposed to be about money and status and a division between people based on where they came from, how they look, all those sorts of things. And James says, hey, if you rush over to the rich person who comes into your assembly and you're like, we really want to be that person's friend because it's going to get something for us. The poor person, forget you. You can't do anything for me. I'm not going to serve and minister to you. Again, the same sort of attitude that's present in this passage is present in our hearts. Jesus goes out of the city. The disciples then show a lack of understanding when they find the withered fig tree and Jesus teaches them about faith in verses 20 and following. The fig tree is withered. Peter points it out. Look, the, 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 the fig tree which you have cursed has been, is withered. Jesus teaches them, have faith in God. They are surprised despite the fact that 
that he has fed the crowds and calmed the sea and done all of these miracles, they're surprised that when he says, fig tree, no one will ever eat from you again, that it dies. And Jesus says, have faith in God, which is the same message he's been saying to people all throughout this book. Have faith in God. Do you believe the things that I'm doing? Do you believe the things that I'm saying? If you've seen this and this and this and this, this should not come as a surprise to you. And yet it did. It shocked them. Jesus talks about the idea of the mountain being cast in the sea. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. The first and primary application here is to their lack of faith. They didn't actually believe that when Jesus said, fig tree, no one will eat from you again, that judgment was going to fall on it. I think correspondingly, and I think this is the bigger point that Jesus is making, they didn't actually believe that if Jesus condemned the people of Israel for their unbelief, that God's judgment was going to fall on them. And why would I make that connection? There's an interesting reference in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, and it says this, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives in front of Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Where are they at? They approach Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives. If it was time for the kingdom to happen, what's going to happen? The Mount of Olives is going to be split and half of it's going to get pushed south toward the sea and half of it's going to go north. What did they not really believe was happening? They didn't really believe the kingdom was coming. The people of Israel, by and large, didn't accept Jesus as Messiah. And so the lack of faith is what Jesus is talking about here. When he says, believe that you have received it. When he says, all things for which you pray and ask, believe you've received them, they'll be given to you. When you stand praying, forgive. Jesus is not saying, in context, what word of faith false prophets say, which is, if you can imagine it, God will give it to you. That is paganism. If you get the formula right, the God will give you the thing you demand. That's not how God works. The book of Acts People come in, they say the name of Jesus, the demon beats them up and sends them out in the street because they didn't actually have faith. But it's not just a lack of faith or a presence of faith, it's an understanding that God's not a God who will be manipulated by getting the formula right. God is a God that we come and we say, God, will you do this thing? And we believe that he has every capability and possibility of doing it. We are talking about this from the book of Zephaniah. God's people... We're about to be carried into Babylon. And that passage specifically says, If you walk humbly before God in righteousness, perhaps God will spare you. There's this optimism, this hope that God can spare his people. And there's these twin realities in the Christian life. God delivering people from the lion's den and from the fiery furnace, but at the same time God's people saying, But if not, I will still follow you. Not, I'm in charge, I will compel you to give me what you want, but rather, God, you are the one who is in charge, 
on the basis of your character, and because you said this is the right thing to do, here's how I'm going to live. I will submit to you as my Lord, I will follow you faithfully as one of your people, and I will leave what happens next up to you. But far too often, we're like the disciples here, who don't see what God is doing, don't have the faith to pray as God would have us pray, and that's again the really important thing from this passage. There's an attitude of the character that Jesus demonstrated, which was to forgive his enemies, that is the basis for a prayer that God will say yes to, verse 25. There is a context of things being done according to God's plan and for his glory that we must pray from if we expect God to say yes to the things we're asking for. And there is a eyes of faith to see what it is that God's doing in a particular moment so that we're even praying the right things instead of just getting caught up in our own ideas about what God's trying to accomplish in the world. The people want Jesus to be their king, so they shout Hosanna. The priests don't want Jesus to be the king because that means they have to submit to him and give up their authority. The disciples miss the fact that if they had the faith to see that at this moment, if God's people wholeheartedly repented and believed in God, the kingdom would have come right then. And the mountain would have been cast into the sea and the millennium would have started and God's enemies would have been defeated and all the glorious promises of the Old Testament would have been fulfilled. But they were blind and unbelieving and didn't seek God's will. The disciples obeyed at the beginning of the section, but they lacked faith to see the connection between Jesus' illustration and the work that he was unfolding right in front of their eyes. They're like, hey, the tree that had no fruit died. But what's the point of that? If we have no fruit, God's judgment falls. It happened in the time of exile. It happened in the delay of God's kingdom. It happens over and over again throughout history. If we don't have faith in God, if we don't believe in God, if we don't follow God, we will not prosper. The crowds welcomed Jesus supposedly as the Messiah. They said the right things that were true about him, but they would prove fickle and follow the religious authorities in the coming days. But Jesus would keep working in the disciples despite their imperfect faith, and he would save some in the watching crowd despite their misguided loyalty to the religious leaders. The greatest condemnation in this passage came not on the disciples or the crowds, but rather the religious leaders, which leads to our next point. Follow Jesus as Lord instead of replacing him with yourself as Lord. So the first point, follow Jesus as Lord by obeying, which is to bear fruit. But now also follow Jesus as Lord instead of replacing him with yourself as Lord. What does this look like? Follow Jesus as Lord instead of questioning his authority. We see this at the end of the passage, verses 27 through 33. Quick comment on verse 26 before we get to 27. Uh, if you see it in brackets in your Bible... The reason that it's in brackets is not because it's not in any of the Gospels, but there is reason to believe that it was not originally in this Gospel. There's a very similar passage in Matthew and I believe Luke. And so there's good reason to believe because this phrase is not in the very earliest manuscripts that somebody started quoting from memory one of the other Gospels when they were copying Mark. So that's why it's in brackets. So it's not an attempt to take away truth from God. It's in other places in the Scripture. It's not an attempt to say we can't trust the Bible. The question mark is not, did God say this? Yes, because it's in the other Gospels. The question is, was this originally part of the Gospel of Mark? Potentially not, but either way, it's in the other Gospels. 
So verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem. As he's walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Who gave you the authority? Jesus' response is not to answer their insolent question, because they came with an attitude of pride. We have authority that we have claimed for ourselves that is indirectly derived from God, but that we have accrued to ourselves far more than God intended. Who gave you the right to come in and tell us what to do or to interpret God's word or to do miracles? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. If he's doing miracles and teaching with authority in a way that's nothing like they've seen, and John the Baptist has announced him as Elijah who is to come, he's the Messiah, and that's why he has the authority, because he's God and from God, and they should pay attention to him. But they're not willing to acknowledge that. So Jesus probes with a question. This is an important strategy when it comes to helping people see the truth of things. Not because the scribes and Pharisees have the right response, but because inevitably when we go after the wrong belief that someone is stubbornly holding to in an aggressive kind of way, what's their response? They become more defensive. If we ask them a question that forces them to think about what's true, God can use that in their lives. And so Jesus' pattern that he shows here is, all right, so let's talk about this. Here's the thing that you're not acknowledging that is foundational to you acknowledging where my authority came from. Was John the Baptist Elijah who is to come? That's essentially what he's getting at. Is he the fulfillment of God's promises to you that a forerunner would come and announce the Messiah? Because if he is... Who does that mean that I am? And where did my authority come from? So often what we need to do is not answer the question that we're being asked, but get at the root of the question that we're being asked. Their issue was not ultimately about rejecting just Jesus. It was about rejecting everything that God was doing. They rejected John the Baptist. Now they're rejecting Jesus. Jesus says, if you acknowledge who John the Baptist is, you have to acknowledge me. If you know the truth about John the Baptist, you also know the truth about me. And they did. Why didn't they say the truth? Because if they said the way they were acting, the people would reject them. And if they said the truth, they stood condemned for their unbelief. So they, pl they pled ignorance. Are there any atheists or agnostics? Because they're pretending to be agnostics here. We don't know what God's doing. We don't know what happened with John. We don't know who you are. No one's really an atheist or an agnostic. Everyone knows that there's a God and that we ought to obey him and that there's right and wrong. But we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness because we don't want to acknowledge God. All throughout this passage is this question of authority. Is Jesus Lord? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that comes from God? If he is, what's the absolutely undeniable conclusion? You have to do what he says. Why don't people want to acknowledge 
that God made the world. Because if God made you, you owe him some measure of allegiance. Why don't we want to acknowledge that right or wrong comes from outside ourselves? Because if we can't define it, we're bound to something that we can't control. The fundamental problem in our society is failing to recognize that God is God and that Jesus is Lord and that the Holy Spirit gives us life. If we acknowledge those things by God's grace, the only reasonable conclusion is that we follow after God as his people. If we reject those things, we're going to go off into all sorts of madness and foolishness and perversion. The priests and scribes here are behaving childishly. Rather than recognizing the authority of Jesus' actions, they defiantly ask, Who gave you the right to tell us what to do? They wanted to continue in their own authority, so Jesus rebukes them with a parable. What do we see from the parable? That we ought to follow Jesus as Lord instead of rejecting his rebuke. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you plant a vineyard, who does it belong to? The person that planted it, who owns the property. If you say, hey, I'm going to be gone for a month, will you look after it, and I'm going to pay you to do it, and it's your responsibility while I'm gone, does that mean that it suddenly becomes the property of the people who are looking after it for you? No, it's still your property. You have the right to come and say, I want some of the produce of that. Our neighbor has a grapevine. It's not my grapevine. If he's gone on a trip and he says, hey, will you look after it for a little while? Sure. If he says, hey, you can have some of the fruit, okay, I take some of the fruit. But if he comes back and he says, I want some of my grapes, go pick them for me. And that's part of the agreement that we've made. I can't say, no, I'm not going to. This is mine now. But that's exactly the attitude that the religious leaders had. God, you put us in charge of your field, your vineyard, your people. Now they're ours. You want something from them? No, they're ours now. Jesus sends the, or God sends the prophets. Here's what you're supposed to do. The religious leaders say, no, we are the ones who are in charge. We're not going to listen to them, your messenger. Did they treat the messengers shamefully? Absolutely. Did they try to kill them? Absolutely. Most of the prophets experienced exile, lack of food, mistreatment by God's people, Israel. Now God has sent his son. What should their response have been? This is serious. This is the one that we need to acknowledge. What do they say? If we can get rid of the heir, we can have it forever. So the owner will come in judgment. 
The leaders are rejecting Jesus, even though he came from God with authority. Who had the right to lay claim on the people of Israel? God. God was the one that bought them. God was the one that led them. God was the one who preserved them. God was the one who was their God. And the people who were the religious leaders forgot and failed to consider the reality that if God bought the people and led the people and preserved the people and was still their God, they were at best servants. The people didn't belong to them. They rejected Jesus again despite his parable against them. They were seeking to seize him and yet they feared the people for they understood that he spoke the parable against them and so they left him and went away. Going back to what we had talked about before with the parables that they were a sign of judgment, the common people tended not to understand the point of the parables, but you know who did, I think, often get what Jesus was saying in the parables? The religious leaders, because they knew enough of Scripture to know that God was condemning them in the things that he was saying in the parables. But they were unwilling then to have the proper response of repentance and following after God. Jesus gives them an opportunity to repent, to recognize his authority and submit to him, but they feared the opinion of the people and were unwilling to repent. I pray before God that I would never have the attitude that this is my church. It's not my church. It's not your church either. It's God's church. And when I say God's church... And I know it probably feels like I'm harping on this. I'm not talking about the pews and the walls and the roof and the spot. You collectively as the people who are trying to follow after God, who have joined together as part of this fellowship, you are God's church in this specific place. So if you are God's church and you belong to God, just like the people of Israel were God's and belonged to him, if I ever had the attitude, this is my church so I can do whatever I want without any regard for what God wants, then I deserve God's judgment. And it's easy to say, well, there's these big churches out here that are doing all these things and misusing God's word, and they're the ones on whom God's judgment will fall. Yeah, but what about us? And that, that works in surprising directions, right? I think we tend to think that means everything stays exactly the same because that's what we're used to. And I'm not saying that everything at church, the way that we've been used to things, has to change. Here's the point that I'm making. We had a discussion a few weeks ago in the fellowship time over lunch about how often should we observe the Lord's table. So here's the question. If it's my church, I say this is what we're going to do. If it's your church, you say, this is what we've been used to doing and this is how we're going to do it. If it's God's church, then we say, what does God want us to do? Now, if the passage doesn't say an exact interval, then there's room for us to collectively decide and graciously work through matters of conscience and say, this is what we've come to an agreement on. But the attitude of the religious leaders was, here's our interpretation Here's what we've been doing. The very Son of God has come and said, here's what we're going to do. And they said, nope, because we're in charge and we're not going to listen to you. If we ever have that attitude toward God and his word, we're in a very dangerous spot. 
And I'm not saying this because I think there's this huge problem that we're resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit and we reject the truth of God, but it is very easy for us in our minds to confuse tradition and our own authority with biblical command and principle and example and all those things we were talking about in Sunday school and God's authority. We only have authority to the extent that we are following after God's authority. We are only right to the extent that we are following the words of God, who is truth. So we need to be like the, those at Berea, who studied to see what the scriptures said. And then when we see what the scriptures say, we need to submit to it, even if it's different from the way everybody else is doing a particular thing. And again, I'm not saying that next week we're gonna, everything's going to look drastically different. I'm just saying, over the course of time, as we encounter God's word, things ought not stay the same, because in all likelihood, if the very people of God, the religious leaders, who had studied the scriptures far more than most of us had, were so blind to what they were doing, being the exact opposite of what God wanted them to do, there's a very real, in fact, almost certain possibility that something of what we do is not what God wants us to do. And as we encounter scripture, we need to say, what is it? What needs to change? How do we follow after God? The people who are in the temple going and buying and selling things and, and carrying animals around, they were absolutely convinced that was the right way for things to happen. And yet Jesus comes in and knocks it all over and says, what was the point of this? We don't like things to change because they're comfortable and we're used to them, right? We don't want things to be different than we're used to because we would have to admit maybe we were wrong or at least it wasn't the best way to do a particular thing. So to the extent that we encounter truth in God's word that says, <clears throat> here's the basic things that I want you to do. I want you to pray. And we're like, but a choir, but a Sunday school. Which one of those three things does God actually command? Pray. And it doesn't have to be an either or. I'm not saying we can't also have special music and we can't also do Sunday school, but two of those things are extra biblical and one of those things is essentially biblical. Right? And what often happens in churches that have been for a long time like ours is the mechanism of the busyness in what we believe to be serving after God replaces the essential things that God actually requires of us. So if by the mechanism of Sunday school we teach kids what God is like, then that is something that honors God. However, if by the mechanism of Sunday school we get overly focused on completing curriculum and those sorts of things and, and we evaluate the spiritual status of a kid by how many times they show up in a row and how well they know the verses, there's not always a one-for-one -one correspondence with Bible knowledge and participation and actually following Jesus. If we say we should sing praise to God, so that means we need to have a choir, that means we need to have a piano, that means we need to have an organ, whatever. 
God's people, we see the example of God's people singing praise to God, were commanded to praise God. But there were a lot of people in the early church that did that from the catacombs without any of the things that we think are essential to worship. And as much as we want to condemn this church over here for saying they have to have a fog machine and special spotlights to worship God, we also have the things that we think are essential to worship that in reality are not essential to worship. Here's my point. I'm not saying we hate God or deliberately going out of our way to displease God. I'm saying over the course of decades and centuries, traditions cluster around Scripture and replace Scripture. And it corresponds with an attitude of pride that says, this is mine, not God's, so if you try to change it, I won't be a part of it. Again, I'm not saying the things that we're doing in our church should look radically different next week than they do this week without any study of Scripture and any conversations. I'm saying, if we see in this passage spiritual leaders blinded to God's truth, replacing God with their own authority, we ought to be really worried that that's something that could happen in our church too. I don't say worried like God can't work through it, but just aware of the likely possibility of it. And if we ever have the attitude that says, Jesus, this is your church, but I don't care. We're going to do whatever we want. God's judgment ought to fall on us. This attitude of the Pharisees is demonstrated in the next section. And I think the point from this section is that we're supposed to follow Jesus as Lord instead of trying to discredit him. Verses 13 through 34. The first example, the Pharisees and Herodians try to trap Jesus in a question about taxes. This is fascinating. The Pharisees are the ones who study scripture. The Herodians are the ones who are really secular Jews, hang out with the Romans, only are concerned about political power. You would expect to see the Herodians and the Sadducees as allies. Because the Sadducees... We're kind of meh about theology and all of that kind of thing. But here you have the Pharisees and the Herodians. They hated Jesus so much, they said, here's the people that politically we're completely opposite to, but they can help us accomplish this goal of getting rid of this guy we don't like, so we're going to go together and work against him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question. We know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. So they lead off with flattery because they didn't really know how else to talk to people and deceit because that's not at all what they thought of Jesus. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Why does this come right after they were seeking to seize him and before a few passages, a few chapters back, they were plotting with the Herodians how they might destroy him? Here's the answer. If they say, Jesus says, yes, you must pay taxes to Caesar, they're hoping, I think, that this will discredit him with the people because a king who says, I will submit to Rome, is not a king that the people are going to want to follow. 
But if he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then they can say, well, why are you listening to this man? He says not to follow the law. Not because they wanted to pay taxes to Caesar and not because they wanted the people to do right or wrong, but because they wanted to get Jesus out of the way so they could go back to being in charge of things. Jesus, it says, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. This parallels what Jesus does, or what God does in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, where are you? Did he have to look? No. Did Jesus have to look at the coin? I can't remember what's on it. Bring me one. Let me check it out. No, that's for them, not for him. Jesus says, whose likenesses and inscription is, is on it? Caesar's. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Hey, by the way, you owe taxes to Caesar because his face is on the money. You know what you owe to God? You owe obedience to God because his rule is over you. And you know what you're not doing? You're not really submitting to the authority of Rome, even though you're doing it grudgingly. And you're not at all submitting to the authority of God because you're rejecting the one who comes with God's authority. So he reverses their trap and says, and uses it as an opportunity to illustrate their own hypocrisy. He condemned their service to Rome while at the same time they were ignoring God's commands. They were serving Rome better by paying taxes than they were God because they weren't doing the things that God wanted them to do. Then we see a second group. They're Sadducees. They try to question Jesus about the afterlife. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him. Now some people say, well, the Sadducees did believe in the resurrection. I think essentially what's going on here is this. You have a group of people who say they believe a thing that their actions show they have no real regard for, right? Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees are the political party, the allies of Rome. We would have expected to see them in the last group along with the Herodians, but instead we see them asking a question about theology because the Pharisees are scheming for political power. What do the Sadducees say? Whether they on paper believed in the afterlife or, or not is a moot point because if they're overly focused on this life and all that it contains, they really don't care about what's coming next, right? So they say, and they ask the theology question of Jesus, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. To us, that seems like a strange custom, but in the people of Israel, there was a goal to preserve the inheritance of lands and families. And so instead of the, the uh, second son saying, hey, this is all mine now, his firstborn was supposed to take the name of his brother and have the inheritance and and preserve instead of it becoming one large conglomerated parcel of land they were supposed to keep the parcels that had been assigned to them when they conquered the land and so this was part of the mechanism God established to accomplish this it wasn't adultery because the first brother had died and even though to us it might seem strange it's not it's not wrong it was a natural way for God to accomplish the goal that he had established of the inheritance that he had given to them but they take this extreme example and say, hey, here's this woman. She marries the first brother, he dies. She marries the second brother, he dies. She marries the third brother, he dies. All the way down to the seventh brother, and he dies. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. 
Jesus says, is not the reason that you're mistaken that you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God? What was the point of this? Love your neighbor as yourself expressed in raising up a child for your brother to preserve his inheritance. What did they try to make it about? Random theology question to trick Jesus. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so why were they asking a question about the resurrection? They didn't care about following God's law, so why did they care whether people followed God's law in the right way? Because they wanted to get Jesus in trouble. Jesus says, by the way, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So what does that mean for cult-like beliefs that talk about things like eternal marriage and all those sorts of things? They don't have a scriptural basis. There is strong evidence in scripture based on Ephesians 5 and the parallels between God and his people using the illustration of marriage and this passage and other passages as well that the purpose of marriage is for this life to illustrate the relationship between God and his people Israel, between Christ and his church. When Christ is united with his church, when God is united with his people Israel, do you still need the illustration? No. In the same way that you don't need faith and hope when the object of your faith and hope is standing right in front of you, but love is still relevant because you will love and, and belong to him and worship him. There are things that are for this life on earth and there are things that are for eternity. Now, I suppose there's someone that could say, well, you're just saying that because you remarried and if you remarried and this isn't true, then you're in trouble. And the answer would be, yes, that's true, but the passage says, this is a pretty clear statement, right? Marriage is a thing for this life. It's not a thing in heaven. That doesn't mean that marriages in this life are unimportant. If you marry someone, God calls you to love that person, serve that person, fulfill his commands to that person. But that responsibility continues, 1 Corinthians 7 and other passages, as long as both of you are alive. If one person dies, the responsibility ends because how can you... Um, Live that out to someone that's no longer there. When Kelly was sick, I got up in the middle of the night to help her with things that she needed. She couldn't go to the bathroom on her own. She couldn't walk around. She couldn't go get a drink of water. I did all those things and I told her and there was a moment I think that I think she said it as an offhand comment and it was hard for me to hear something about well wouldn't it be easier if you didn't have to do all this stuff yes but I don't want you to die just so I don't have to do these tasks but when she did how can I do all those things for her The reason that I bring this up is I think there is a sentimentality in our society that says that we sort of keep people who have died alive because of the way that we feel about them. But the reality is we don't have the opportunity to show love to those people anymore in an objective, practical, real way. Which leads me to say two things. The first is if you're married and your spouse is sitting here, love your spouse because there's going to come a day when you can't do that anymore. And that will be hard. God says, as long as you are both alive, you have a responsibility to each other. Fulfill that responsibility. The other thing that I would say is, instead of trying to make up for it after the fact, which is what so many people do because we neglect our husbands or wives 
in the course of our, our everyday lives and then someone becomes sick or someone dies and we're like, oh, here's all the things I wish I would have done. And I'll be honest, I've struggled with that because there are moments when I was spending time watching videos on Facebook on my phone when I should have been having conversations with Kelly. There were moments when we should have gone for a walk instead of sitting and watching TV in the basement. There are moments when we should have gone and played in the park with the kids instead of whatever, right? What I'm saying is not that I can go back and change those things or that I'm trying to excessively guilt you about them, but to the extent that you have opportunity to show love to your spouse, do that because there is a very brief window in which you have opportunity to do that and to provide the illustration that God talks about in Ephesians 5 of the love that Christ has to his church that says a church that is wicked and perverted and sinful and unlovely and all of those sorts of things and Jesus loved us anyway that's what God calls us to when you love your husband or you love your wife not to love someone who's perfect but to love someone who is a sinner and do it anyway but that's not really the point that Jesus is making here right his point's about the resurrection and that's the point that we need to hear have you not Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning book how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. They heard that and they're like, great. He's reciting history. And Jesus says, no, he's reciting reality. God is the God of Abraham who is alive and Jacob who is alive and Isaac who is alive and all who have followed after him faithfully who are alive. So you want to argue theology about people that are dead and gone that you don't really believe they exist anymore. God is the God of those who are saints before us who are alive and in His presence. Is that going to be you someday? Jesus saw the irony of asking about a resurrection that they rejected but pointed out that marriage is for this life and that God is the God of the living. So what hope does that give us? Those who have died in Jesus will be gathered with him at his coming, and we will see them again, which necessitates one of two things, that we have a relationship with God and that they had a relationship with God. And when is our window for that happening in this life? Do you actually believe that God is a God of resurrection? If you do, then you're not going to say trite things like, well, so-and-so's in a better place because I feel it to be true. You're going to say things like, this person trusts in Jesus, so I will see him or her again someday. Which then, take a step back, if so-and-so doesn't trust in Jesus, means we are going to be doing everything within our power and praying fervently for God to save that person because resurrection is real and death is real and God's blessings are real and God's judgment is real. But if we just want to argue points of theology and scheme for political power like the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees, our hearts are not really acknowledging Jesus as Lord and believing that he's a God of the living, not of the dead. We see a scribe. He comes next. And he of the three groups seems to have been the closest to what Jesus would accept. He seems to genuinely ask about the greatest commandment. What commandment is the foremost of all? 
It says he recognized that Jesus had answered them well, verse 28. Jesus says the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He answers with the Shema of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, from Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe answers in a fascinating way. Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. What did Saul say? I'm not going to obey you because I'm going to give you more sacrifices because that's what you really want, right? And God says, I'm not a God of the pagans. I don't want more sacrifices. I want you, and I want your obedience, and I want your allegiance, and I want your life. Romans 12. God doesn't want you to pray so that other people will see you praying. He doesn't read you read your Bible so you can say, I read my Bible today. He wants you to dwell as a living sacrifice in obedience to him because that means that you belong to him and you've truly understood the whole point of the Bible, which is to love God with every fiber of your being and to love your neighbor sacrificially. The scribe alone of these groups was closest to understanding the heart of what Jesus wanted. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After this, no one would venture to ask him more questions. The rest of these groups knew the law, but rejected the God of the law and his messengers, especially the Messiah. We might say, okay, end of the passage, move on. But what do we see at the end of this? Follow Jesus as Lord because he is Lord. Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Jesus basically says, if Bartimaeus spoke the truth, and if the crowd spoke the truth, and I am David's son, but David called his son Lord, that means as David's son, as the heir, as the Messiah, I am your Lord and you must acknowledge me as such. It's a mystery. How can a son be a Lord over the father? And yet it's absolutely true. In another place, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. They say that's blasphemy because you're claiming to be God. Yes, he was claiming to be God and he is God. He then warns against the religious leaders about what has gone on in this whole passage. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. He warned against the religious leaders who kept their laws but forgot God's law. How do we see this illustrated? In what was happening in the temple. Here are people who potentially are poor or at least not rich in the same way that people in the city were. They probably weren't merchants. They probably weren't those kinds of things. They were humble farmers and they come to worship God and they say, we're going to take advantage of you. Among their number would have been widows. But look at the next little section at the end of the chapter. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums among whom would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. 
Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. What did he just get done saying the religious leaders who were rich did? They were rich, they had status, they were recognized by the people, and they oppressed people and gave very little. And here's one of the very people they were oppressing who had nothing and gave it all to serve God. Which one understood, love God with all of who you are and love your neighbors yourself, to say, I will come and worship God by giving and I will love my neighbor by giving even though I have basically nothing. And I will trust God to provide for my needs the next day. This widow. What does the end of this passage then teach us? Woe to us if we oppress those who truly follow God with little knowledge and simple faith. We saw that in a previous passage. Let the little children come to me. Come to the kingdom of God like a little child. Here are people coming from long distances, getting ripped off in the temple and getting exploited in their opportunity to genuinely worship God. People from far away, people like the Ethiopian eunuch, they come to worship God. Those who are in charge of things of the temple oppress them and do all the same things that they were doing before the exile, which is a big part of why they weren't ready when the Messiah actually came for God's kingdom to be established. Woe to us if we oppress those who truly follow God with little knowledge and simple faith, if we ourselves know much yet follow God barely at all. Who understood the parable? Who knew God's law? Who had the right answer? The people who refused to acknowledge Jesus as Lord as the authority from God over their lives. We do need the exact obedience of the disciples, right? Jesus didn't say, go get the colt, say this thing, come back. And they did it. And then he said, well, actually, I wanted this other thing instead. I just wanted you to feel away in your heart. No, he wanted them to do the outward act of obedience, but he wanted alongside that a genuine understanding and belief in Jesus as God. And the crowds, he didn't condemn for saying, the kingdom of the son of David is coming because that's true. He condemned the religious leaders who knew what all of that implied and refused to acknowledge him. We need the exact obedience of the disciples and the true word of the crowds, but back them up. Just like the tree should have had leaves and fruit, we too need to have the right words, the right actions, and faith. Because otherwise it's just empty. Back them up not with hearts of jealousy and scheming and desire in our own power, but hearts of obedience and love for God and others. Follow Jesus as Lord. How does this start? Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because you understand that God is a God of the living and not of the dead. Because Jesus is the one who has true authority and you submit to him because you realize that in him is found salvation and in yourself there is no hope. That's where it starts. But it continues over and over again. When Jesus says and lays claim on your life, like he comes in the temple and says, this is not the way to do it. Here's what you ought to do instead. When he comes and lays claim on your life and says, instead of doing these things that you enjoy, you should pray and you should serve and you should meditate on who I am. Are you going to do it? And keep playing games on your phone and sitting at home and all those kinds of things. When Jesus comes and lays claim to your life and says, 
Give up this sin. I don't want you to live in lust. I want you to live in purity. I want you to live in selfishness. I want you to live in service. I don't want you to live in anger. I want you to live with forgiveness. Are you going to say, forget you, Jesus. You can't tell me what to do. Or are you going to say, Jesus is Lord, and if he's Lord, that means he's Lord of everything, or he's Lord of none of it. Follow Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, these verses are so convicting that there could be a group of people that are plotting the scheme to kill your very son and at the same time thinking they're right before you because they washed their hands and they didn't touch a dead body before the Passover. That there are people who genuinely want to come before you and it is very easy for us to want to saddle them with all kinds of Christian jargon and opinions and attitudes and all of these sorts of things and say, well, if you don't do it this way, and if you don't say it this way, and if you don't look this way, then you don't love Jesus. Help us not to teach people church, but help us to teach them salvation and all things that you have commanded us. Lord, as much as we might see a passage like this and say, oh, this talks about that person, and that group or that church over there. Shine the light of your truth in our own hearts, in our own church, in our own groups. And show us where we have gone astray from what it means to love you with all of who we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. You'll take care of that other person, that other church, that other gathering of people in your time. You call us to deal with ourselves and our own hearts. So help us to do that this morning. Amen.